Welcome to the Yes, Young Enough to Serve podcast. Here we'll share stories of adults over 55 making a difference and making disciples. I'm Ryan Marcella, and here's our host, Judy Papineau-Wick. Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I know we had a couple weeks off for the Christmas New Year's vacation, and uh, it's just so wonderful to be in a new year and with uh, the hope that this year holds through Jesus Christ. I am so looking forward to some of the interviews that we have lined up for this year, but to be able to start this new year with a friend that I met several years ago. So first of all, just to give you a little background before I introduce you to Anne. Um, I was serving at a ministry gleanings for the hungry, and I was out walking with a friend one morning, and this friend actually served at a prison, uh, a woman's prison here in California. And she told me about an inmate there that uh, was a Christian and had become a Christian. I'm not going to I don't want to be a spoiler alert on her testimony, but anyway, a a woman that had become a Christian while in prison, and my friend said, I think that this inmate and you would really click off. Would you want to, um, you know, reach out to her just uh, through, through writing and just see where that goes? And so I jumped at it and uh, went through the proper hoops that you need to go through when you uh, communicate with a a prisoner. And when I received my first letter back from Anne, I knew in a heartbeat that God had ordained this new friendship. And so through uh, writing letters back and forth, uh, the day came when I was able to go and visit her in the prison. And um, I will let her tell you the rest of the story. So, Anne, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the Yes Podcast. Julie, thank you so much. Glory to God. And what is such an honor and a privilege to be able uh, just to to chat with you and just to share the love of Jesus on the air. So I just want to say thank you in advance and Happy New Year's and May this year will be a miraculous year and that his provision and protections and continue to walk before us and continue to lead us and guide us into um, the glory that he has in store for us. Amen. Amen. Well, Anne, I would like for you to just, um, um, as you feel comfortable going back a little bit with your backstory and uh, yeah, just telling the listeners uh, how you got to where you are today. <laughs> um, let's start when I was, um, well, um, my name is Ann Vo, and I was born in Vietnam. Um, I came to America at the age of close to 10. Um, of course, I didn't know Jesus uh, back then. And um, I grew up in a family where um, that I was provided for everything and shelter. And uh, the one thing that was lacking was uh, love and attention. And as every little girl desired just to be loved and just to be held. Um, so I sick uh, outside of 
uh, my family, uh, the love that I was lacking and the attention that, uh, that I so crave and desperate for, um, my life turned into a lot of destructions and twists and turns. Um, you know, as, as a, as a young girl, um, I begin to taste alcohol at the age of 10, as I remember, uh, growing up. And, um, I, I was, um, my family was Catholic. And so I, back then I was Catholic, but now I'm a, a born again Christian. And so, uh, I remember coming home and they had a celebrations and everybody had alcohol. So, you know, I tasted and, oh, wow, I, it tastes so good to me. I didn't like the taste, but it, it helps me cope something inside of me beyond my understanding at that, mo- at that moment. And um, so I keep, you know, I remember my parents having a uh, uh, wine um, cabinet and I would go in there, dip in, dip in there, and I would add water so that nobody would know. And what I re- I didn't realize that I was using alcohol uh, to cope with so many things that I was so confused and so lost, and um, I didn't have a place or or anyone that I was able to to share because I was very shy as a little girl. I didn't um, I didn't realize that. I have a voice. I never um, really speak up or or ask for help or or you know ask for the things that I needed. Well, I didn't realize that until you know later age in life. But you know, I remember starting out. So at the age of twelve, I was you know into teaching school, um, you know, drinking, uh, even trying out marijuana at a young age and you know, hanging around with crowds that I didn't realize that, you know, but I didn't realize it wasn't good for me. But the one thing that it made neat was I had the attention and I felt like I was wanted and I felt like I belong, like a, a part of a family. And so, you know, in my journey, I, you know, I came to America. So I was in middle school. That's when I started ditching school and, um, and then start high school and, I was drinking out of control, and still I'm thinking uh, a function alcoholic. Uh, there's no such things. Um, but at that moment, I don't know how I graduated. I don't know how I even got to college. Uh, to make the you know the story short, um, but in that process, you know, I was there was a lot of things inside that I never understand. Uh, you know um, how to cope with it. So when I was a little girl at the, I remember at the age of maybe two or three going to around that age, I was touched, you know, inappropriately um, by, you know, my grandfather. And I didn't understand that I asked for, or did I, I like it, or did I want it? Of course not. You know, you, I was just a little girl, but I didn't know how to deal with that. And then my family, my mom and my dad, they're wonderful parents. But what they learned was to provide. They worked very hard night and day to provide for the family to be able to put shelter and food on our table. So that was their priority. That was their number one. So as long as we had a place to live, 
food to eat, clothes to wear, that was that we were well taken care of. But there was a deeper need that every child longs to feel love and want and belong. And so I didn't have that growing up. And so, you know, it, throughout my relationship, to make it short, through, throughout my relationship was very toxic because I was yearning to belong or to be right. felt love and want until, you know, I, and I went from all kinds of different relationships that to think about it, to remember that and reflect, it was just because you know, they make me feel some kind of way that I, you know, even if they were mean to me, I would think at least they were around me. Does that make sense? It's like, you know, and I was, I was so desperate for that love and that belonging that wanted to be a part of, of, you know, a family or with someone that I was go through the extreme, the, you know, uh, extreme measure and my all my relationship was told so toxic and um you know even become so violent and the last relationship that make it pass is um i graduated from aa degree and i remember going up to san jose to go to a university to further my education well i never made it because i was so drunk mm. and um so then I was working, you know, for different agency um, as a bookkeeping at that time. And I met um, a gentleman at that time. And I thought, well, you know, he made me feel like I, you know, met the world. And what I didn't know was he came with a lot of baggage at that time. He was a, a gambler, a drug addict. And including me, I was an alcoholic. And, uh, you know, taking all kinds of pills. So that didn't help either. But, you know, it felt like, oh, I met this Prince Charming mm. because he is so good to me. He paid attention to me. He made me feel special and wanted. So my whole, you know, my whole majority of life is looking for love and, and seeking that love right. and that approval and um, until one day that this gentleman, um, we became, um, you know, he was my boyfriend and we lived by, you know, we lived by ourselves. And I don't remember that slowly, slowly I was being isolated. I used to come home to visit my family at that time, like once a week. And it became further and further and further I was so isolated and so alone, but I felt like, well, at least he loves me. At least he cares about me. At least I have him. And, you know, not realizing that that was destructive and toxic and he was trying to control my life and, and, you know, um, and isolating me. Well, you know, it led up to one moment when I was very desperate very desperate and very hopeless that he gambled and lost, you know, all of our money. I didn't have money for gas, didn't have money for food, for rent, nothing. And um, I was in um, 
with, so I call one of my old friends and ask to borrow some money and he loaned me the money. And then at that time I was, uh, you know, helping out with doing international marketing translator in my own language to different jewelry store. So I told my friend all about it. He wanted the money back. And then he asked me to work with him so that he can grab the bag of jewelry. And then um, I, and that, you know, I don't have to pay him back. And that was it. Well, in the very beginning, when you're desperate and you have nothing left, I say yes. And in that process, I changed my mind, but it did happen anyway. And I never called the police. I never reported it because I was so afraid. Because there was time when I, those few days, I told them, well, I, I don't want to be a part of it. But then my life was threatened. So to say all of that, you know, my victim, Mr. Stengo, died because of my action and because of my mistake and because of everything that happens to me that led up to that moment that I was so self, didn't even care about anything at that moment, but just my life. Mm -hmm. And so he lost his life and um, I went to prison. I was... Uh, to make it short, I went to prison um, in 1996, September, September 1996, I went to prison. Um, I went to county first because Mr. Stango had lost his life. And I was the one who told the officer everything that had happened that led up to that moment. And I... I was sentenced, I was convicted and sentenced to a 25 years to life sentence. So when I was, um, and when I was in county jail from December 19, 1996, I walk into a cell, county cell. I was there to close to three years fighting my crime, waiting, you know, fighting, um, fighting my case and waiting to go to court and trials. And something came over me, which is I just wanted to die at that moment. I felt so ashamed and so, so much regret um, beyond my understanding, beyond my thinking. And I remember the first time my dad and my mom came to visit me behind that glass window. This is the first time, remember at that time I was 26 years old. I remember the first time my dad just looked at me and tears just came down his eyes. For the first time I seen my dad cry since I was 26 years old. And there was this moment where there was no word needed to be said. Um, my dad and my mom, you know, put her hand through the glass. And all I could tell them was, I'm so sorry. I, I, I'm so sorry. That's all I could say. Mm -hmm. And my dad, you know, 
tell me it's going to be okay. We're going to hire a lawyer for you. It's going to be okay. And I realized at that moment that, you know, my dad never showed me that. For 26 years, all I wanted was my dad to show me and just to say, I love you. For 26 years. And because his tears express it in such a different way, it only make me feel so even shameful and so even uh, guilty, you know, even more. And um, and then slowly by slowly, my family, each one of my family was there for me, standing beside me, you know, letting me know that they are going to be there for me. And they are going to try to somehow to get me out. Well, that didn't happen because when I went to trial, I lost trial and I went to prison and I was sentenced to first degree murder and second degree robbery because it's a robbery led to a murder. And I remember seven years, of my first seven years when I came to prison, March of... Um, 1999 I felt like I this was the end of it I I was just existing and not living anymore either mm. uh, because I was going to go and do this life sentence and you know, die behind this bar and there will never be no more sunlight and nothing else I don't I didn't have hope um, I lost all the hope you know and I felt so, so helpless. I couldn't even help myself. I see my mom and my dad crying every single time they visit me and the love that they have for me. And they were still standing beside me, regardless, right or wrong. And for the first seven years, what it took was I lost my sister. My sister, who's um, her name is uh, Julie, which is three years older than me. When she passed away in 2000 of cancer, I begin to understand because I started to cry when she came to visit me. She battled uh, cancer. Mm -hmm. And on her last um, chemo, she did three sets of chemo. On her last, the third year, we had six hours together in visiting room when I was in prison. That was the most amazing gift that anybody had given me because my sister at that time didn't really didn't have any hair left. And she looked at me in the eyes and she say, I wish I could trade places with you and that you could just take care of my children for me and watch them grow up and be there for them. And, um, and the love, the encouragement that she poured out to me in that visiting room. And then here's love again. Love and affection that I crave for and long for that it didn't have. So, so my sister, Judy, died. She passed away in um, March of 2000. And what it took was... Um, going through my grief and loss 
I begin to see a, um, a therapist who I begin to talk about things doing my grief and loss process. I was able to talk about my crime. I was able to talk about my um, childhood. I was talk about, you know, all the things that happened to me, my core issue, and what happened to me led me to that moment. And taking all the self-help group along with therapy every single week, I begin to start understanding a little bit where I come from and what happened to me and what led me to do the things that I have done so horribly and those decisions that I make that cost thousands and thousands of lives and it still affect today. It's a ripple effect. Um, I begin to understand the insight and the dynamic of that. And so I begin to facilitate reading books and trying to help other people start facilitating facilitating class Mm -hmm. and trying to give back to the rest of my sister in prison who's taking the classes and stuff. So then one day I, um, I began to journal from that moment on. I kept a book called, I journal every single day, called The Blossom of a Sea, and that sea is me. It talks about my life. It talks about me. Well, it took in July of 19, I mean, July of 2009, when my mom was fighting for her life, she needed her heart her heart wouldn't 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 breathe uh, wouldn't beat anymore um they needed a heart and the closest that they could do was a pacemaker and she was in ICU and I remember sitting outside on the grass with two of my friends in prison uh sharing my um book called The Blossom of a Sea um there was this overwhelming power that came over me and it was so bright and um, I couldn't see and nothing but just tears uh, running down my face and um, and I was just crying nonstop nonstop where I couldn't even breathe um, it, I was like that for like almost an hour and then I left and I went in to my room and grab a towel and went into the shower and just kneeled down on the floor. And I asked, God, if you are real, because I don't believe you're real, because if you are real, how could there's so much that happened to my life? And But if you are real, then you need to reveal yourself to me. But most of all, I just want you to save my mom's life. And I'm willing to give you my life. And you could do whatever you desire to do. And... Um, and I did not realize that at that moment I was making a covenant with God because soon after that, they uh, utilized uh, my mom uh, with a pacemaker and her heart started to, to uh, beat again. And, and um, glory to God. And I, you know, I was so grateful and thankful, but I still didn't know what I need to do. So I got this invitation to attend Cairo retreat, four-day retreat uh, from prison fellowship from the outside. And I didn't put in for, for the paper. Someone put my name in it and I was chosen. 
out of the 42 uh, women that's going to be part of that journey is called Cairo time. And uh, I remember um, September 4th going into that gym at 3 p.m. I have the same overwhelming feelings that I felt when I was out in the yard back in July. And um, I was I felt so overwhelmed. And there was this pastor, her name was Holly, and she approached me. She said, you must be Anne. And do you know that your name means light in your language? Wow. And I just became silent. I really didn't say much. I just became silent. And so, you know, I was just listening and they were sharing um, the love of Jesus and um, and just his words. And so I just soak it in. So the next day, um, you know, I, we start again at 8 a.m. And I was sitting at the table ready to go. At 6 o'clock, I turn on Great Glory. And he was um, sharing, and you know, the good news. And at the end, he asked if I wanted to accept Jesus to come into my life. And at that moment, around 625, at that moment, I sat right there and I say, you know, Jesus, I'm asking you to come into my heart. I believe that, you know, I repent from all my sin and I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose again on the third day and I want to make you my Lord and my Savior. I want you to change my heart, take my life. You know, I want you to just to change me. Um, and I remember, you know, sharing that when I went to Cairo. And from that moment on, I didn't have a Bible. So um, I put in to, for, to see the chaplain and I requested my first Bible and it arrived on September 13th. And I remember everybody's telling me, read the book of John, read the book of John. But that that is not where the spirit that led my finger to the book of Isaiah. And I remember, you know, Isaiah, well, I didn't know. So I just read, I just read. And Isaiah is, you know, 66 um, chapter, you know, it's like a miniature uh, Bible and I remember the, the first 39 was talking about destructions and, um, you know, being idolatry and being a horrid and all kinds of stuff. And the last 27 was the promise of the Messiah, salvation, redemptions and all of that. But I didn't understand all of that. So then the, the second book was um, Esther and... So I was like, okay, Esther, and then, then you know, then I, and then everyone's telling me, read the book of John, it's love. So I read the book of John, and then I went back all the way from the beginning. And I remember September 27 was my first dream that I have of God. The first um, verse was Second uh, Chronicle chapter 7, verse 14. And I remember you know, so vividly in, in my dream that the land was so dirty and in the middle of it was a crack in the middle and there was so, you know, it was trash everywhere in that land. And I remember at the end of my dream, that land was healed, even though there was still a, a crack in the middle, but it was healed and it was clean. And I, I never realized that, but that was the first time that God has, and I didn't know my Bible. I didn't know my way around. I was so new. I just started to read since the 13th and God woke me up at, at two, you know, 30 in the morning and tell me to flip through the page and exactly what he wanted to show me. 
And it was so significant. And I hold on to that because that is my life verse every single day. And then after that, I remember he's telling me seminary Bible college. And so I didn't understand what seminary Bible college mean. I I don't know. I, you know, I... I was Catholic. I never taught, you know, they were, they never taught me that there was such things like that. And, um, and so I went and asked the chaplain and the chaplain started giving me all kinds of Bible study to do. And, um, and then he said, but he wanted me to go to school. And so, you know, I came back and I say, Lord, how am I going to go to school? I can't afford it. You know, my parents are old and they've been supporting me. And there is no way that I'm going to have them send me to college. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and I say, Lord, but if you want me to go, then you provide for me. Well, you know that three years later, right, to me is part of prison uh, fellowship. And it's through um, a gentleman um, by Wayne Hughes and... He donated, I think, five millions to prison everywhere to start uh, Bible school. And that's how I begin to dive and, and seek the Lord. And, um, you know, but after that, even after that, I have never stopped reading the Bible, seeking the Lord since September 13 of 2009. Every single day, I would read eight, nine hours a day, diving in, and then, you know, just sharing with people how much Jesus loved them. But one of the things was, is that's so amazing that what God told me was that I needed to write a forgiveness letter. I needed to ask people to forgive me. I need to apologize to people, and I needed to forgive other people as part of changing my heart. And I remember I took one day... And I start writing so many letters and sending out, it start with my family and people that I knew. And even inside, if there was anybody that I have hurt, that I have disrespect and, you know, that I have used or lie or cheat or steal, that was my time just to get clean and, and have a, a, a brand new heart. And I remember you know, doing that. And the more I do that, the more I feel so light and such a healing came over me. And just like, it just like joy, I unspeakable joy that I've never experienced. And this love, this love that I felt from that moment at Cairo with all the uh, women from uh, prison fellowship outside coming in and hugging and loving me and I've never felt that love in my whole entire life. And you remember that I was seeking for love. I just wanted to be loved. I just wanted to feel belong. Well, Anne, oh my word. I just wished every listener could meet you personally because you just exude with the love of Jesus. And I know when I first met you, like I said at the beginning, I just knew that we were, we had kindred spirits and I love how you love Jesus. I appreciate how you took responsibility for your actions and your part, but you asked Jesus to forgive you. That is under the blood. And then I appreciate too how you wrote letters uh, asking forgiveness And then you've just immersed yourself in the word of God and you've made yourself 
so available to serving Jesus and to being a disciple. And I want the listeners to know that while Anne was in was was in prison, that God used her to meet many, to use many, many women to lead them to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. So Anne, it is an absolute joy of mine to consider you a friend and to be praying for you and to watch as God just continues to open doors and as he unfolds his will in your life. Um, Before we close today, I just want any listeners to know that um, if God is even prompting your heart to reach out to a prisoner through Prison Fellowship Ministries, which we'll have the link on our website, but you can Google Prison Fellowship Ministries and look to see how you can become a pen pal with someone that's in the prison system. So for our men that are listening, there are obviously men that would just benefit so much from your friendship and from you being a light. And for you women that are listening, there are girls and women in prison that would just love a note from you. And then we'll just leave it up to you and the Holy Spirit on how those relationships and friendships can grow. But Anne, I love you, and I love how you love Jesus. Can I have you say a word of prayer at the end for our listeners that God will just um, stir in their hearts, and if maybe just a few would reach out to those in the prison system, I just think this interview would be more than worth it. Yes. Eternal Father, just praise you and glory to your holy name, Father God. I just want to pray for each of my sister and brother who is listening today, Father God, that you will prompt in their heart, that that you will touch their heart in a mighty way, Father God, that they will be able to be willing and want to touch out, reach out to the brother and the sister that it's been in prison and locked up, Father God. You know it's such a lonely place, Father God. And that they so desperately need to know that someone out here that loved Jesus, that's willing to connect with them, that's willing to be there for them, to encourage and give them direction and guidance, Father God. I pray that you continue to guide and direct, Father God. I pray that you continue to pour out that you will continue to bless them in a mighty way, Father God, and that you will continue to be their Lord and Savior, Father God. I pray that your will be done in their life, Lord God. And I pray that the story that has been told today is your story that you have written, Father God. And I give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise, Father God, for not that what we have done, but because for who you are, Lord, and we praise you. And, and I just want to thank you for each listener for taking their time just to hear uh, what, what I have to say, Father God. And I'm so grateful and thankful, Father God. And I pray that the Young Enough, uh, yes, Young Enough Ministry that they will continue to expand and they will continue to be used by you in a mighty way, Father God, 
And I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. And thank you so much. I love you, friend. Well, thanks for joining us today. For more information about Yes and to find this episode's show notes, you can visit us online at yestoserve.org. Also, if this podcast was helpful or encouraging to you, please share it on social. And if you would be so kind, please leave a rating and review. And if you're not yet a subscriber, I don't know about you, but I only listen to the podcasts I'm subscribed to. So hit subscribe. It's absolutely free. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next time.